We must never forget that it is a constitution we are expounding, cautioned John Marshall, one of the first chief justices of the U.S. Supreme Court. Marshall, speaking almost exactly 200 years ago for the court in McCulloch v. Maryland, had foresight. Forgetting what a constitution is and what that implies for expounding it is the central political problem of our time. Constitution Day, September 17th, the date on which the framers of the Constitution signed the nation's charter into law, is an opportunity to remember and to take warning. I'm Tom Shakely, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. I am Tom Shakely, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law, and I'm joined today by a great lineup of Americans United for Life experts. We've got Steve Aden, Rachel Morrison, and Clark Forsyth with us. It is great to get together. We've all appeared on Life, Liberty, and Law independently, but this is the first time we're getting together, and we're doing it for a great reason to talk about the Constitution, which is the thing that is central to the issue that we work on here at Americans United for Life, which is the fundamental human right to life. Steve, the words that I spoke in the introduction are your words, actually, for an op-ed centered around Constitution Day. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Sure, Tom. Thanks very much. Uh, I have the privilege of penning a Constitution Day essay on politics and the Supreme Court. And in the process of that, it uh, occurred to me that the principal question that the Supreme Court faces, especially as it looks at Roe versus Wade, the worst constitutional decision of all time from 1973, around which a lot of our work revolves, they spill a lot of ink about avoiding political questions. Uh, but my essay uh, points out that in truth, they're actually basing their decisions in abortion cases frequently on political questions. And here's what I mean. The very determination to avoid looking political, looking bad to the public, which you know some of the justices may be animated by in these abortion cases, is itself a political consideration. The only way to avoid that is to decide questions on the basis of the constitutional text and history, a textualist approach. And that's what AUL argues for, because obviously there's nothing in the text or history of the Constitution that requires uh, a finding of a fundamental right to abortion. Roe was made up out of whole cloth, out of thin air, out of the penumbra of the Bill of Rights, uh, as um, one of the justices said. So we're here to talk about what political considerations really means and uh, really try to out the court, so to speak, as it claims that it's not uh, considering political questions, but in fact, it really is. Let's take a step back and talk about the Constitution itself. Yeah, that's what makes Constitution Day so special. And Marshall's words, we never should forget it as a constitution we are expounding, so important. And I'm glad to be able to celebrate that today. Uh, a constitution isn't just a statute. It's not just a law. It's not just a contract. It is a covenant. It is a document that the people together make. And as Marshall also said in another context, they can unmake. But you cannot approach the interpretation of a constitution 
the same way you approach any statute or any law. Public policy has no bearing on how you interpret a constitutional text. So early on, when the Republic was considering adopting the Constitution, uh, Alexander Hamilton and others went around writing uh, the Federalist Papers, trying to convince people that they ought to adopt the provisions of the Constitution. And in addressing the notion of a federal judiciary, Hamilton had to defend that. Uh, He said, uh, look, the other two branches are powerful. The legislature obviously can make laws. The executive, the presidential administration, enforces them. It has an army. Uh, But the courts are the least dangerous branch because they have no army at their command, no police force to enforce their decrees. Their authority depends on one thing and one thing only. Hamilton said they have neither force nor will but merely judgment. And the power of the federal judiciary, the federal courts, depends only on respect for the rule of law. Uh, You can't put too fine a point on it. The rule of law in our constitutional system doesn't just depend upon respect for the courts and their decisions. It is respect for the courts. And I think this interfaces well with what, Clark, you've written upon um, the issue of prudence as a part of the public good and as a part of the public square. Are we being prudential in how we think, we as Americans broadly, think about the Constitution today? Uh, Not unless we are are, uh, loyal to the text and support justices and judges uh, who are also loyal to the text. I mean, the other thing about a constitution, uh, our constitution, is that it says that the text is the supreme law of the land, not other law and not simply what the judges say about it. The text is the supreme law, and, uh, and there are ways to amend it, proper channels and proper procedures to amend it, but it shouldn't be amended, as justices have said in the past, by simply what the justices say about it in case law. Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch recently spoke about his latest book, and he was talking about the role of the Constitution, and he spoke about the amendment process. And you know, he pointed out, as, as we've done here, that it exists. We can amend the Constitution. But I think we're at a point now where part of the force behind the idea of the Constitution as malleable, as, as living, as open to interpretation based upon whatever the, the particular moment in the country says it should say is because we've reached this point of gridlock in our politics where, I mean, when is the last time we've had a serious constitutional amendment push? Not in the lifetimes of most Americans at this point. It seems like we've sort of given up on that, Clark. Yes, and, and uh, if you say that the Constitution is, quote-unquote, a living Constitution, you're basically handing it over to the judges to say what it is. And if you do that, that's the end of self-government because uh, we're ruled uh, not by the text that... Uh, the people ratified and can change by amendment, but were ruled by the judges. And uh, that's no longer self-government. And I think that's what we saw in Roe, right? That is sort of our central critique, is that seven men stood up and took upon themselves sort of the role of a super legislature. That's exactly right. Uh, And it was a disastrous decision for so many reasons. Uh, And one is certainly that it has just created unending political and social turmoil for 46 years. All right, Rachel, so I want to learn here why the U.S. Constitution. We're talking about Constitution Day generally. We're talking about the importance of constitutions, but why the American Constitution? What's so important? I think what's important about the American Constitution 
is that it has created a framework to promote freedom and flourishing. Now, if you ask someone, why are Americans so free? They might point to the Bill of Rights. But I would disagree. I think Americans are free because of our Constitution and the structures of government that it has created. Now, you look at what the Constitution created. It created federalism. It created this balance of power between the federal government and the states. Now, as the federal government recently has been assuming more and more control over things that are traditionally state issues, you're seeing a lot of issues related to freedom and regulation in people's private lives and that conflict with their religious beliefs. And and that's something that is not in accord with what the Constitution envisioned. And that is something that is starting to encroach upon freedom. Now, something else that the Constitution created was the separation of powers between the three branches of government and these checks and balances. So the legislative, the executive, and the judicial branches all have separate roles, as was touched on earlier. When one of the branches of government starts overreaching into the other role, such as when judges start becoming activists and wanting to legislate from the bench, and the prime example of this is Roe versus Wade, in finding a so-called right to abortion in the text of the Constitution when there is no right to abortion in the text of a Constitution. And that creates a lot of problems, and that takes away freedom, and that hurts Americans. And so it's important to look back at what the Constitution is and the value it brings. And the important thing about the Constitution is that it doesn't change based on the whims of the day. It doesn't change based off of what five justices on the Supreme Court think. The important part about the Constitution is that it creates this structure and that it's something that promotes freedom and promotes this balance of power. And if the people of the United States don't like it, they can choose to change it through the amendment process. And it's a good thing that the amendment process is not easy, but it's also a good thing that there is an amendment process. And as you can tell, we've had quite a few amendments along the way something like prohibition. We tried prohibition, decided that wasn't a good idea, got rid of it. And so so there is a way for, for us to make amendments to the Constitution, but the role of the Constitution is not to legislate every area of life and dictate every single thing, but to create this structure that promotes freedom and flourishing. I'm hoping that each of you can speak to the issue of the Supreme Court itself and the fact that in the eyes of some Americans, they look at the Supreme Court not as a co-equal branch of government, but as the place where debate ends, as if the Supreme Court cannot make mistakes, right? As if we have no experience in America of the Supreme Court having made erroneous decisions. And I think part of it is this this challenge in the body politic of people working through what happens when the Supreme Court errors. How does that get resolved? And I think it gets resolved through politics, at least in part, but I want to hear each of you expound upon this a little bit more. Let's start with you, Rachel. I think it's important to remember that when a president is sworn into office, he swears to uphold the Constitution. When justices of the Supreme Court are sworn into office, they swear to uphold the Constitution. When members of Congress are sworn into Congress, they swear to uphold the Constitution. So each branch has a duty to uphold the Constitution, and their oath is to the Constitution. And so the beautiful thing about that 
is that if the Supreme Court comes down with a decision and Congress doesn't like it, they legislate in response. You've seen this in the context of the religion clauses when the Supreme Court said that there was no free exercise of religion if the law is generally applicable and neutral. Congress, with overwhelming bipartisan support, passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which protects the free exercise of all Americans, regardless of their faith. It restored what the Supreme Court had taken away as the understanding of what the free exercise of religion means. The president signed that bill into law. And so you see that this is an example of how there's this talking back and forth between the branches. And the Supreme Court said something, but Congress and the president disagreed. And so they reacted to that. And so I think that's the beautiful thing is that the Supreme Court was never meant to be the end all be all, the only branch of government that could say anything to the con- about the Constitution. Yeah, I think there's this definite confusion in many folks' minds that they view sort of Congress and the White House as these interacting units, and then they view the Supreme Court as above both. And so in most folks' minds, there's not co-equality there. There's not that interplay that you're addressing. Clark, can you expound on this a bit more? Well, I think the question is, what what's the role of a Supreme Court justice? Do we put justices on the Supreme Court uh, because they are the wisest people in the land or because they're uh, uh, moral philosophers? No. we. The role of a Supreme Court justice uh, is uh, to expound on the law and to be experts in the law, to understand the wisdom of the law. Uh, so they are not moral philosophers and... Uh, the, uh, they aren't there because they're the uh, wisest people in the land. Uh, they're there to follow the law. They're there to apply the law that they are given, whether it's interpreting the Constitution that they're given or interpreting uh, a law uh, passed by Congress that they are given. In the context of what we do, I think we need to remember that Roe versus Wade is probably the most intensely political decision in constitutional history. And the demand for abortion distorts every doctrine of constitutional law it touches, uh, so much so that justices on the Supreme Court have described judicial review in abortion cases as an ad hoc nullification machine for laws restricting abortion. They've said that abortion has worked a major distortion in the court's constitutional jurisprudence, and they're right. Roe needs to go. So why is it that when you have apparently a majority of justices on the Supreme Court currently that think Roe needs to go, why don't they just toss it overboard? Well, they have had no problem in the last uh, few years tossing overboard, even by five to four narrow decisions, uh, other sometimes very long-standing constitutional precedents. Uh, I can think of five or six uh, decisions in the last few years that uh, both uh, the conservative block of the Supreme Court have uh, thrown overboard and um, at least one case in which the liberal block of the uh, the court has thrown overboard. They don't seem to have any compunction about tossing bad constitutional precedent overboard, except when it comes to Roe, and that's the rub. The point of my uh, Constitution Day article is that when it comes to Roe, there seems to be suddenly a newly found reticence to appear political that the justices just don't have in many other contexts. That's wrong. That's bad constitutional review, and it's damaging both to the integrity and the public perception of the court, as well as, of course, to the health of the whole country by upholding this abhorrent uh, decision from 1973. 
Clark, your book, Abuse of Discretion, outlines abortion law and our current jurisprudence as we have it. Did the justices at the time, Clark, understand that they were making the court so political? Did they know what they were wading into? No, and that's clear from the papers of the justices and the internal deliberations uh, that I looked into in abuse of discretion. Uh, they didn't have any evidence. They didn't have a record from the lower courts. Uh, everything in, in Justice Blackmun's majority opinion is taken from interest group briefs uh, filed in the Supreme Court for the first time or his own research uh, during the summer of of 72. Um and that's not way, the way the court's supposed to operate. Uh, um, I think Blackman feared that the court would be criticized by some media, but um, they did not have the foresight uh, to see what they were launching upon the country. And um, they were surprised, I think, by not only the pushback by the public, but um, by things like the uh, introduction of ultrasound. They had no uh, understanding of that. Uh, and, of course, that has changed, you know, permanently changed public opinion in this country and its understanding of uh, prenatal development. So in so many ways, the, uh, the, the justices, when they got political and uh, created a a national abortion law in Roe versus Wade um, did not anticipate what what they were doing or its implications. Right. In fact, Clark, uh, when it came time for the Supreme Court to consider overturning Roe and Webster in 1989, you actually found a memo in the papers of Justice Byron White uh, in the Library of Congress where Justice Kennedy is having a colloquy with Chief Justice Rehnquist, and he says in this memo, uh, that uh, this would have been an occasion to overrule Roe versus Wade and return this difficult issue to the political systems of the states, he says. But it's not strictly necessary here, so let's not do it. And they didn't. In fact, uh, the chief justice writing for the court, uh, for the plurality in Webster, expressly refused to overturn Roe. And uh, then you have a rather biting dissent by Justice Antonin Scalia, who argues that that very decision not to overturn Roe was a political decision. And uh, his concurrence was so strong, I would, I'll quote part of it. He says, Our retaining control through Roe of what I believe to be, and many of our citizens recognize to be, a political issue continuously distorts the public perception of the role of this court. We can now look forward to at least another term with carts full of mail from the public, streets full of demonstrators urging us, their unelected, life-tenured judges who have been awarded these extraordinary undemocratic characteristics precisely in order that we may follow the law despite the popular will to follow the popular will. And that mountain of letters in the Supreme Court, folks, uh, those uh, folks uh, at uh, the March for Life every January just gets larger and larger and larger. This issue is not going away, just as Justice Scalia predicted it would not. A few years ago, Clark, you wrote an op-ed called How Can Anyone Think That Roe v. Wade Is Settled? You wrote in particular that the mere passage of time does not settle a Supreme Court decision. Roe, you said, is nearly a half century old, but Plessy v. Ferguson, which affirmed racial segregation, was 58 years old when it was overturned in Brown v. Board of Education in 1954. 
Several other decisions were older when they were overturned. Roe is unsettled in politics. You made that point. As litigation counsel, Rachel, you are responsible in part for helping inform the court, helping inform judges as they're weighing weighty issues. How do you think judges should think about this as they relate to the Constitution, this issue of precedent, and, and how to balance the the pressure that exists because of politics and the political discussions that go on. As Steve mentioned, justices have life tenure so that they will not be swayed by the whims of the public or majority opinion, but that they have the freedom to follow the Constitution and be true to the text. Now, I understand that there's probably a lot of pressure that justices are facing, that they do care about the reputation of the court, that they do want to do the right thing, and they're human as well. And so they may or may not make the right decisions for the right reasons at times. And I think it's natural for them to want to take these political concerns into consideration, but I think it's problematic, and it's something that they need to fight against. The more the justices choose not to take an abortion case because they don't want to wade into this political issue the more and more that decision not to take that case is going to be political in and of itself. As Justice Thomas said in one of his concurrences this term, the Supreme Court created this mess and the court is duty bound to fix it. And so eventually the court is going to have to jump in and try to untangle the web it created with Roe, Casey, Hellerstedt, and all of its abortion opinions. And we are hopeful that the court will return the issue back to the states where it belongs, that they will right this wrong that has been done to the Constitution and to the country. Yeah, that's right, Rachel. In fact, uh, Justice Thomas, as you mentioned, has it exactly right. The only way to avoid being political is not to be political. We hope the Supreme Court gets that memo and earnestly takes a close look at Roe versus Wade and, uh, like some of these other decisions, throws it overboard. One of the reasons that that refusing to overturn Roe is political and makes the court political is that it makes the court uh, a political target. Uh, we see have seen in virtually every Supreme Court nomination confirmation hearing uh, by a Republican president of, of a candidate for the court that um, supporters of Roe versus Wade uh, launch a campaign of personal destruction. So every nominee is subject to that uh, because of concern that they'll overturn Roe versus Wade, and they uh, get confirmed with their reputations uh, being savaged, uh, and that will continue as long as the court holds to Roe versus Wade. So uh, for its own uh, for its own integrity, for its own legitimacy, for its own survival, the court has to return the issue to the states. And in addition to Supreme Court justice nominations, as Clark mentioned, it's also problematic when it comes to other cases unrelated to abortion where a party is asking the court to overturn a precedent or change something that they had done in the past. Because all of the liberal justices at the back of their mind when they're considering whether to overturn another precedent are thinking, is this going to support the overturning of Roe versus Wade, which we do not support? And so it impacts other areas outside of abortion, and that's also problematic. 
Yeah, it seems in, in many ways that the Supreme Court, with its Roe decision, as Clark spoke about in abuse of discretion, that it's sort of, you know, the, the court has parachuted in inadvertently into a live minefield and they've they've all made it. They've all survived. Uh, they haven't stepped on any mines yet. They're still alive. But now they have to figure out how do we get out of this minefield? Uh, and so I think you're seeing them very slowly try to figure this out. Some of them aren't moving. They're happy to stay right where they are. But the rest are trying to figure out how do we get out of this um, without getting ourselves killed? Can we speak for a second to understand Chief Justice John Roberts and and the, the conservatives on the court, their concern with the reputation of the court and upholding sort of the integrity or the perceived institutional weight of the court. You contrast that with Congress. Most congressmen will make jokes about Congress, their low approval rating of congressmen, um, the, the dysfunction of Congress. Uh, and there's sort of a humility there, or at least a recognition that, that the, the public perception of Congress usually isn't too favorable. But when it comes to the court, there's this there's a sense of, well, we've got to maintain this decorum and this sort of the sacred aura about it. And it, it, isn't it a case, though, in that sense of constitution minded justices sort of fighting with their arms behind their back? Yeah, that's right. In fact, I don't think there's much difference between the chief justice's view and the views of uh, Justice Thomas and others. They both are concerned with how the court is viewed. They would get there by different means. Uh, but I think Thomas has it right. The chief justice, in his desire to curate the public image of the court and to preserve its political capital, is actually acting politically. He's got external concerns, concerns external to the case itself at play, and that's not the constitutional role of the federal judiciary. And Thomas is right. The only way to avoid looking political is not to be political. The text and the history of the Constitution should be the only basis for the court's interpretation of the constitutional text. That preserves the respect for the court upon which its political capital depends. I just like to encourage everyone to read the Constitution and look at what's in there and look at what's not in there. Okay, this has been a great conversation about the Constitution. Rachel, really appreciate that advice. It's important advice. The Constitution, you can go Google it and find out what's in there and what's not in there. Steve, Rachel, Clark, thanks for joining us. We do every week a weekly shot of gratitude. And so, Clark, what is something you are grateful for? So many times when I think about the Constitution and uh, on this particular day, uh, I, I'm reminded of how our constitutional structure is so different from so many other countries in the world and, and that the separation of powers established by our Constitution prevents tyranny. It prevents the consolidation of power um, uh, the executive power, judicial power, legislative power in one person or one body. And when you look at China, when you look at uh, a number of other countries around the world, you see tyranny, you see the consolidation of power. And the U.S. Constitution is uh, uh, glorious in preserving freedom by separating those powers and that has to preserve, be preserved for the future of liberty in this country. Thanks so much. Steve, how about you? What's something you're grateful well, for? I'm grateful for the full, robust, and uninhibited public debate we're seeing right now, which is a product of our uh, First Amendment liberties and especially free speech. Very, very grateful for that. Rachel, how about you? What's something you're grateful for? I'm grateful that 
The Constitution was established to help promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty for all. I am so grateful we live in this rambunctious, exciting republic. You know, I saw somewhere a few years ago somebody make the point that if you want efficiency, then the regime that you're looking for is a dictatorship. But it's in republics and in democratic societies that you have the real work of citizens coming together and working through issues. And that sometimes takes time. It sometimes means difficulty. But this is what life is about, working through that together and building a country that we can all be proud of, to be a part of. Thank you, Steve, Clark, Rachel, for this great conversation. It was great being here with you today. And happy Constitution Day. Thanks, Tom. Happy Constitution Day. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Okay, if you enjoyed today's program, go out on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this and rate the program, leave a review. It's how the audience grows and it's how we get the life-affirming message of Americans United for Life and the pro-life movement broadly out there to new folks who need to hear it. Happy Constitution Day. Go read it. I'm Tom Shakely. This is Life, Liberty, and Law.